0: This is Inspiring Design, where unique innovators come together to share their knowledge, share their insight, and keep us up to date with the latest industry trends. And here's your host, Rashan Senanayake. Alright right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Inspiring Design with myself, Rashaan, and uh, we're here with a very talented architect from PDT. She's been registered um, as an architect and been practicing in the industry for 20-odd years. Um, She's an associate at PDT Architects as well specializing in retail and retirement living uh, she's got a very um, high passion for sustainability she's done some projects in, um, such as center on james street harvey bay stocklands shopping center um, garden city westfield in queensland as well as um, town center rejuvenation schemes in the united kingdom Um, And I think one of the other key projects is the Emporium Hotel in the Fortitude Valley. Um, So other than that, uh, let's kick things off. Um, Welcome, Natasha. Glad to have you on board. (laughs) Can you um, start off by giving a little bit of background on yourself, um, just your journey of uh, your career to date? Sure.
1: Okay. So I probably became interested in architecture uh, probably primary or early high school. Um, I was really interested in in art and design at school, but I also had quite a strong curiosity for science, and um, one of the recommendations for me was to consider architecture uh, as a career path, which I did proceed with. Probably also living on a building site for about 10 years of my life while mum and dad were renovating also gave me a bit of a passion for...
0: So they were builders?
1: uh, Well... They were probably self-owner um, <laughs> own, owner builders, I guess yep. you could say. So it was um, back then when you had the money to do something, you might get a mate around to do some bricklaying or, or, or extend your roof or things like that. Yeah. Um, but certainly um, I did have a, an interest in what they were doing and was quite curious and got involved in things like tiling and laying out bathrooms and, and whatnot. So yeah, I guess that um, kind of... Was it was an influence early on
0: in in looking into architecture? more. so that was early. actually before you en- um, entered uni, even. Yeah, that's yeah. right.
1: And then yeah. I did a lot of early travelling um, yeah. in my younger university years, and got to see um, quite a, a fair few um, of the masters, I guess you could call them, which also fueled my passion for, for architecture and understanding what they were trying to achieve. And, Mm -hmm. um, also the ethos behind good architecture is producing functional, um, built form for people. And to me, that's really important still today to try and look very closely at what, um, the client or the end user requires and, um, trying to conform to that.
0: Yeah. yeah, no, that's brilliant, actually. And one of the things you mentioned before we started um, recording was the fact that you you had experience in the United Kingdom. Mm. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about mm. that?
1: That was a, a really amazing few years. We were um, outside Australia for about five years living in London. And um, really that was a, a trip that was going to take us away initially for a year or two, and we we're going to treat it more as... Um, a way of travelling through Europe and, and taking the sights, as most Australians want to do, and, and there's there's many people out there who, who see it as a bit of a, a gap year or, or a, um, a path to um, growth. Um, but it really um, was so beneficial for, for my career in particular. Um, I was really thrown in the deep end and became an associate out there, um, became Because of my early um, interest in in retail and and, um, mixed-use development in Australia, um, I was um, um, employed by a company who was doing a lot of work joint venturing with local councils in the UK and and looking at the issues that they had around um, unemployment and um, youth crime and... Um, how town centres were becoming quite dilapidated Mm -hmm. and um, looking at injecting those spaces with um, updated um, retail solutions and residential options and creating new entertainment precincts. Uh, So for me, it was really interesting work and... um, some of the best years of my career,
0: really. Yeah, that's um, awesome to hear. And I think um, bringing that experience here, um, a lot of the projects that we would be working on would mm. have that influence. So um, I think your firm is lucky and then the clients are lucky as well to have that diverse Thank you. mindset. <laughs> Thank you very much, Risha. Um, one of the questions that I always get asked, um, especially from different types of listeners, like my um, students from tertiary as well as um, teachers, is understanding exactly what the... Architects registration process is mm-hmm. in Australia mm-hmm. um, Having gone through architecture myself. I'm aware of it mm-hmm. uh, but um, it's it's a it's a very long long process that can take a lot of time and years and years mm-hmm. of training um, Can you walk me through the step-by-steps sure. of that?
1: Sure. So I registered back in 2001 and uh, I did the process um there's, there are a couple different ways you can go, but I, I went through the process by attending um, university first. So I attended um, my first degree, a Bachelor of Architectural Studies mm-hmm. at Adelaide University, which yep. was uh, three years. And that was a full-time degree. Then I came up here to Queensland and continued my studies at QUT where I did a Bachelor of Architecture. Yep. And that was actually part-time, and that allowed me to work in the industry. And it was actually an expectation of that course – that you would be uh, completely immersed in an office, um, which is actually really where you learn. You learn on the job.
0: Definitely. Um, and can I say, I gotta, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm so happy to hear that you're a QT graduate as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, fantastic university. Um, I actually left Adelaide University not just because I felt like I needed to expand my horizons and the job prospects in Adelaide as an architect weren't very healthy at the time. And we were told that at the outset in first year as well, only 50% of us would be graduating and of that 50%, Um, most of you would be moving interstate anyway to be employed. So I thought, well, I might as well do it now.
0: Start early. Start early
1: and what a nice place to come live. So uh, I did that and um, actually discovered the course through some other friends who were doing the same thing because um, QT did allow you to do that part-time and work and live um, while studying. And I felt that it was something that did lack in my um, Adelaide university course what was that functional how does an office work what is what is required day-to-day on the job yeah and it was a great way for me to find out very early on what it was like to be working in an architectural office Mm -hmm. and and understand what where I was heading towards career-wise
0: yeah and back then um I think the master's wasn't actually a requirement
1: no that's correct so I graduated with um um undergraduate degrees uh and Probably ten, fifteen years before me, you actually had the option of registering with um, graduate certificates uh, as well as um, I think diplomas at the time. Yeah. So a lot of uh, the directors that are in firms today may actually only have um, just the bachelors. Achieved, uh, yeah, a diploma or yeah. a bachelor, and the masters has only been a recent inclusion. Um, but there are other ways that architectural um, courses are run. Some do six years full-time, others, uh, I think they still do this, do five years but they have a year out and you actually spend a year out in an office working full-time and then go back to your studies to um, complete your course.
0: It's actually slightly different now. Um, it's The bachelor's is four years and uh, you've got the formal master's year um, and they, I believe that they allow one year of Work experience, but it's not a mandatory right. thing for okay. the university.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, So that is quite different. We have uh, a number of students who who work in our office, but most of them, predominantly, are QTs. We've got maybe there you go. one UQ <laughs> person. So. Yeah, I'm still catching up. Thanks for letting me know.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, So after you've completed your university studies uh, and um, the accredited courses in Mm -hmm. architecture, um, you then have the option of going on to uh, prepare for your registration. Yeah. And that's a process that I guess the majority of people are undertaking within one to five years of Mm -hmm. um, graduating from university. And it normally involves... um, uh, maintaining a logbook or achieving a certain amount of hours in in an office in various competi- competency standards. So there's mm-hmm. um, typically design, practice management, um, project management and uh, documentation and construction on-site experience as well.
0: Is contract admin part of that as well? Uh,
1: it, it I think it rolls under project management. I see, yeah. Um, but... There is an expectation that you will be exposed to um, on-site construction, um, um, I guess, looking after your job on-site. You're not necessarily construction managing, because these days we now have construction managers and project managers who uh, are tied to the contractor, Um, but on a lot of our work these days, we're often novated across to the contractor. So we're working underneath that builder um, as um, a consultant to them, um, which is different from our traditional architectural services. But without going into too much (laughs) and bogging down on that. So after you've done uh, your logbook Mm -hmm. and your required um, hours, you then get the uh, ability to sit for a written examination and then if you're successful in passing that written examination, then you go on to sit before a panel which is run by the Board of Architects and they assess your competency through typically an hour-long conversation mm-hmm. with you about your I've experience. I've heard that can be
0: very daunting.
1: It can be very daunting and uh, I think the number one um point to remember there is that as long as you are honest in your delivery of what you do and you don't know, Mm -hmm. and that uh, if you don't know something, you know where to go and who to ask, then they... um, can appreciate that you're unlikely to bring the architectural profession into dis- dis- disrepute, yeah. and uh, that you won't be um, taking any undertaking any high risk activities which could um, become detrimental to your clients and yeah. the profession.
0: No, of course that um, at the end of the day uh, there is a lot of risk involved, and I mm. think that's why the process is quite difficult. Mm. So, um, just on the logbook, do you know how many hours? Um, exactly, because this is a question that I get asked a lot. Right. Okay. Um, do you know how many hours that they need to? Currently,
1: um, I could definitely ask one of my students who's going <laughs> through the process right now. Um, what
0: I've heard is it can be two thousand hours or three thousand hours, which equates to roughly one and a half to two years working full time. Mm. Um, that's what I was told mm. when I was going through university. That's about so. right.
1: It's typically about a year mm-hmm. of full time employment. Yeah. Um. But the specifics around that, I'm not too certain.
0: Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, and I've heard that there can there's um, frequencies. So, for example, if you do fail um, to pass your written examination, you can always start again. Yes. Um, do you know how often that um, that the rounds are uh, held? My
1: understanding is that at the moment they're held every six months. So there's normally a summer and a winter. Yeah. Um, and um, my understanding is is that if you don't pass the first time, you can sit. Um, multiple times after that yeah Um, there are however fees associated with that so it's not it's not exactly a cheap process yeah Uh, but there are also um, um, a few courses that um, the Australian Institute of Architects run Mm -hmm. um, to assist in preparing for your practice exams as well and I know a number of students like to um, participate in that
0: yeah. In that I think that's a valuable resource for mm. the listeners, um, whether they're a student or teachers, I think um, to know and guide their students to point, point them towards the AIA. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's actually beneficial. Thank you for that. Um, with With regards to um, the actual process and co- using the word architect in Australia, mm. mm-hmm. um, I want to bust this myth that <laughs> um, it's almost. It, it's a. I feel like it's it changes from country to country. Mm. Um, a lot of people call themselves a graduate graduate architect right mm. after university mm. because an mm. engi- engineer is mm. allowed to do that. Mm. Uh, what's the what's the goal with it in in architecture? The general
1: rule of thumb is that if you're not registered, you cannot call yourself an architect because that is a um, protected. Um, Entity mm-hmm. uh, Australia-wide. Australia-wide under um, the Architects Code of Conduct, uh, and it's also relevant to note that if you are registering in one state, you do not automatically have um, right to practice in another state. So you do have to seek registration
0: yeah.
1: um, to practice in another state, yeah. and that's typically um, a fee. And a, a process um, where each um, board in each state will just um, check um, that you are fit to practice in, in, in their jurisdiction. Yeah.
0: yeah. And um, once you are registered, you can call yourself an architect. And I believe after that, every year, you must attend um, Mm -hmm. and keep an X number of CPD points for continual development. Continuing
1: professional development, I'm just tidying that up now. There you Uh, go. (laughs) It's due typically around the end of uh, March every year. So you'll often see uh, a lot of architects doing a lot of extra study around that time. Um, It's 20 hours total, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's made up of. Um, 10 hours or CPD points which are informal, and that might be anything from attending a conference um, to uh, doing your own reading or research or brushing up on practice notes, um, to uh, formal um, continuing professional development, which is normally conducted by a, a registered entity. Um, and there's a certain amount of interaction or participation that's expected or um, the content is tested um, to make sure that the architect has actually done done the study or attended the the course. Um, And then we submit that requirement with our registration fees once a year. And so
0: you have to pay to be an art- yes, call yourself an architect?
1: Yes, yes, you do. That's right. Well, that's so that our board can can keep doing the, the work that they do to, to protect us as an entity and also yeah. um, assist the public as well because mm-hmm. they um, certainly want to make sure that architects are practising um, proficiently mm-hmm. and um, protect the public that way as well. Um, and then uh, we also just need to verify that we are fit to practise both mentally and physically and also that we haven't bought the profession into disrepute, into disrepute, and haven't gone through bankruptcy or, or anything yep. like that. So we're, we're business-wise fit to practice as well.
0: I think that's why the word architect comes with a lot of respect and heaviness, mm. almost. And um, yeah, I feel tired just listening <laughs> to the whole process.
1: <laughs> Sometimes it is a little tiring. Yes. Yeah,
0: but, but I think it's a it's a worthwhile journey once mm. once you actually go through those hurdles that's and. Right. Um, and props to anyone who actually goes through mm. that. I'm actually guilty of uh, deferring from that, <laughs> but um, each, each one for themselves. So mm. I'm actually very glad to hear. And I know a lot of my students and um, teachers will be very happy to hear and understand that process. Mm. Um, so I want to actually now move the conversation to understanding how... The architect's mind works a little bit, mm-hmm. and understand how the design process behind an actual practicing architect works in an in- mm-hmm. um, office capacity and, and in the industry. Um, can you sh- set, uh, shed some light on what are the? How do you start to even when you have a client and you've been given a brief? Mm-hmm. How do you start designing? How do
1: we start? That really depends, Rashan, on where we are coming on board into a, a project process. Mm-hmm. So, um, I guess the traditional service is from feasibility stage right through to post occupancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, everything in between that is design documentation so that a, a contractor or a builder can take. Um, the information that we've put forward about our built form and take that away and then construct it. Uh, and then we'll follow through with contract administration, so either supervising, superintendent, being in a superintendent role on site, which is uh, a traditional supervisory role of um, the um, contractor um, and being the go-between between the contractor and the client, or these days uh, it's become more and more um, prevalent doing a design and construct um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: role, which is where we are across to the contractor. Mm-hmm. And the contractor, in fact, becomes our client and we work very closely with them to produce the built form rather than um, the traditional working for the, for the client who gave us the brief in the first place.
0: That's actually shifted throughout the years, isn't it? Do you think it will shift again? It has,
1: yes. It used to be more uh, traditional service and it's become 50-50, I guess, and it will depend on the sectors that you're working in. Perhaps Mm -hmm. if you're working more in um, um, low to medium residential, you might be doing more of a traditional service, Mm -hmm. but on the larger um, projects in other sectors um, here, we work on everything from... Sports facilities right through to education, schools, um, retail, um, aged care, everything in between that. So a lot of projects these days, because they want to follow the fast-tracking model and get the, the project to completion as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. they'll do the design and construct um, contract methodology. Yeah. Um, and the industry's also become a lot more about mitigating risk. And so if the parties can shift the risk along, yep. <laughs> they will. Um, but um, that's just all the fun and games of the industry, I guess, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, so going back to the process, if we were to be handed a greenfield site or, or even a brownfield site that had some level of structure on it, we'd first off probably be doing a bit of a desktop study. We'd be looking at um, whether anyone had assessed um, the current um built form on the site whether it could be reused or whether it needed to be demolished um, whether there's an ecology on the site that needs to be respected how it connects into the surrounding um, environment or community um, and we'd probably do a very quick sketch overlay describing some of that information how big is the site what does the client want to do with the site What is the site currently um um, um able to to take from a development approval
0: process mm-hmm. uh, Let me just pause you right there and actually with, with regards to doing that study, so essentially, mm-hmm. if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're researching inside and out.
1: That's right, yeah. that's right so we're trying to gather all the knowledge that we, we have on the site, sometimes yeah. that's a lot, sometimes yeah. that's not very much sometimes the client may have engaged other consultants already to do a lot of this um, initial research so there might be Um, an environmental scientist scientist on board if we know that there's um, say a koala corridor across the site um, we'll be working with a town planner who will Mm -hmm. have intimate knowledge on um, the council zoning Mm -hmm. and what can and can't be done on the site Uh, we might already be working with some other um, engineering consultancies such as civil um, or um Um, if there's any known stormwater or or flood mitigation issues across the site. So we'll we'll just be building up a, a bit of an image of what is existing on the site and what could possibly be done. Um, and sometimes that might be as far as a client goes because they may only be looking at the, the, the property to purchase. They may mm-hmm. not even own it at that point. Yeah. Um, they may be looking at um, how they can financially make the project um, viable at that point. Yeah. Um, and then once we've done that, if we get a green light to go ahead, we'll then be working on formulating a brief with them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes clients come with a brief. Sometimes we reverse briefing back with our knowledge of other projects and putting together some of those parameters about what they might need for their end users. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we'll move into sketch design phase, which is, I guess, what most people think of architects as constantly doing. I wish I was sometimes. That's the most creative. Just drawing
0: (laughs) 24-7. That's right.
1: That's the most creative part, and that's when we put out our yellow butter paper and see
0: that's actually something that I really want to elaborate because schools and universities obviously really encourage hand sketching Mm. and using trace paper Mm. and um, iterating over and over again Mm -hmm. versus jumping straight on computers Mm -hmm. and Mm. that's something that I wanted to ask um, in a high-end firm like such as P V T as well Mm. do you use trace paper and the hand sketching that you do just the old-fashioned pen on paper
1: we do still do that and i think even amongst our um, younger colleagues they are still very much about that fast iteration as you put it of overlaying and overlaying and overlaying because the mind is moving a lot faster i believe still than what our ai can do
0: definitely agree Um,
1: so until we can actually tap into those brain waves and put them somehow out into the computer Um, I I don't think we can quite capture it fast enough and I think it's just a it's it's a very nice way of working it's tactile Um, you can very quickly build up um, sets of options and then depending on where you like to go um, and how early a process you like to move something onto um, the um, software programs Um, at this point, maybe we might move to SketchUp or we've got some other um, block modelling programs that we might use or using some of those um, tools in Revit just to build up some very early massings and block diagrams. Um, at that point, we'd be looking at relationships and connectivity both on the site and off the site. So, uh, um,
0: from the point of view of the end user?
1: Yeah, from both the end user and also what the client um would like as an outcome so sometimes they don't always align (laughs) so So you're
0: essentially having to empathize with two end users your client and whoever the actual occupant might be of that that's right that's right
1: so if you um take a, a school for instance we we often work with um government departments um in the education area and it will be possibly something that we'll receive in a briefing format, but when we go talk to the actual um, site users, such as the, the staff on site and all the students, and understand what their needs are, then there may be some disparity, disparity that's happening within the brief. And so then we might actually formulate some additional alternatives or solutions to take back to... Um, our official client, I guess you could say, yep. and then work with them to massage that all together and, and hopefully come out with a functional outcome that meets everyone's requirements.
0: Yeah, yeah. definitely. And and so from, a, from an architect's point of view, how important is sketching skills?
1: I think it's still very important. <laughs> I want to say that it's extremely important. Mm-hmm. I think just as a way of thinking, I know myself um, having worked extensively in BIM, almost my entire career up until around five years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, It is, I think, something that you can become very lazy at if you're not doing it all the time. And I think there's still something very lovely about being able to sit and communicate with a client uh, and do so using your sketching skills, Mm -hmm. whether it be in 2D or 3D. Um, And when you're doing quick sketches, I still do a sketch and put it on the photocopier and sketch over it and sketch over it and then whack a title block on it or scan it in and put it on Photoshop, Um, we're still hand-writing notes. We're still um, doing quick little um, charrette exercises where we -hmm. we might just have a couple vignettes of what we imagine the project to look like um, and doing a quick elevation, things like that. It's also important when you're marking up work as well, working Mm -hmm. with um, your documentation team. Yeah. as well so if you want to detail something out if you're looking at i don't know for instance a uh, a, a timber pergola connecting to a building you want to understand how that is actually being arranged and how maybe uh, a builder might pull that apart and then put it back together on site then you do need to be able to sketch yeah
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, one of the things you mentioned um was bim and mm. uh for the for our listeners who are not aware of BIM, BIM actually stands for Building Information Modeling. And uh, I was actually li- um, lucky enough to be part of some QUT, um, Building Information Modeling Research, back, I think, um, at least five years ago. Mm. And uh, it was early days, a little bit, and but we were exploring the possibility of 12th Dimension Modeling, mm. up to 12th Dimension. Mm. Um, how has it been in practice? Do you actually explore up to 12D or... Whereabouts do you land in, or in oh, your experience? This
1: is probably a little beyond me, Rochelle. <laughs> um, well, we we we've really begun exploring um, areas outside of 3D. So something that um, we've really found useful recently is um, point point cloud survey. Mm-hmm. So where we've got an existing site and we want to very quickly establish. What is where? Uh, traditionally, we'd have to go out onto site and measure that
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, by hand, and then mark that up and bring it back to the office, and then input it into our um, our computer modeling program, whether that be Archicad or Revit. Mm-hmm. Um, these days, we can send a surveyor out there um, who might have a drone mm-hmm. or um, a a, um, a computerized um, surveying dumpy, I guess they used to be, dumpies, but yep. I don't know what they would call them now. Um, and it can just within a, a, a day or so get all the information that would have taken us weeks to compile and to a very intricate level. Um, so if you have a, um, a heritage-listed building, you can very quickly build up a 3D image mm-hmm. um, just by using that type of equipment, yeah. um, which we would have used traditionally measuring and photographic um, um Recording as 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 a way of achieving the same result, but in such a finite period of time. Yeah. And then we were talking before uh, we we started on VR and whether we're using VR in the industry. And mm-hmm. yes, we we are. Um,
0: when did it actually come into play um, for so PDG point So we've probably of
1: been playing with it for about three years. Yep. And um, we. Um, obtained our first headset possibly two years ago and before Mm -hmm. that we were playing with some of the technology that was available in apps on phones Um, but we've been using that to um, help clients understand some of the um, architectural design that we've been putting forward Mm -hmm. um, for certain projects Um, some of those projects in fact have been with Queensland Rail Mm -hmm. and helping them to understand some of the spaces um, because I think if you're not in um, a design profession, it can be very hard sometimes to visualise these exactly. things. And um, so we've really gone from doing hand sketches to showing um, perspectives and 3D models on um, computers, and mm-hmm. now we're um, immersing ourselves in in um, buildings with technology, which is really amazing.
0: I think that's, um, that's a very exciting time, and this is what... Um, um, a lot of schools and, and students are trying to get their head around. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that stemmed from it is what are the software packages that people use or mm-hmm. need to know mm-hmm. um, to go on to um, that VR platform and mm-hmm. be able to engage with the client mm-hmm. in that level. Um, so you mentioned SketchUp before, you've mentioned uh, Revit and Archicad. Mm-hmm. Um, can you guide me through the process of where these software packages fit in mm-hmm. along the design mm-hmm. process?
1: That's going to be different for every architectural practice because a lot of practices um, might be reluctant to get into um, using software packages to develop up the projects until much later in the design process, mm-hmm. while others are quite comfortable bringing that in very early on and might jump straight to SketchUp and not really use much hand sketching mm-hmm. at all. But um, typically we'll use SketchUp um, to a, a point in our early documentation processes, in the concept design phase, in the concept yep. design phase, and possibly up till the end of the de- development approval mm-hmm. stage. Yep. Um, and then would normally move to Revit, and then start using Revit for our documentation. So that's yep. doing our working drawings, um, which are then used by the the builder or the contractor to physically build the structures.
0: Yeah, and um, Revit and ARCHICAD are the building information modelling platforms.
1: Mm, That's correct, yes. And from what I understand, although we don't have many clients who who take this up, both of those programs can cope with Mm -hmm. post-occupancy through various add-ons. So they can use those for their building management systems and start monitoring things like their... um, Maintenance of um, services, the ongoing quality um, of the indoor environment, mm-hmm. um, everything from from heat loads on the buildings and how the buildings. And energy are efficiency, energy measures, efficiency, yep. lighting, um, all of those
0: sorts. Very of powerful things. packages, I think, and yep. they keep adding um, extra functionality to it. And I think yes. it's uh, it's hard for us to even even for an architect who uses it every day to keep up with the changes, is that right?
1: That is right. And uh, say five years ago when I was, um, well, it's probably longer now, 10 years ago when I was working out in the UK, they were just beginning to... Um, get their head around everyone moving to Revit and that was be- becoming a mandated requirement yeah. over there which I, I found really interesting um, but they're working towards being able to then um, construct the buildings and then at the end of life of a building take the building apart and then using um, the um, embedded information in Revit to to do that and wow. to keep keep track of where that materiality is then going whether it's upcycled or reused or um um yeah it's just amazing
0: in the in my research um on bim we actually found that it can we can get to a point where you can theoretically even start to simulate the productivity measures of labor forces Mm -hmm. um on on site and estimate how long something might take to um, rise and mm-hmm. and actually build, mm-hmm. and as well as if the for example restrictions on uh, cranes turning circle uh, delays on those things, and looking at a hundred year uh, rainfall and weather mm-hmm. predictions and estimating those mm-hmm. delays or you know contingency plans can be put in place, mm-hmm. then all those things are quite apparently theoretically possible right now Mm. and and it's been implemented in the software but i haven't necessarily seen it being rolled out Mm. yet Mm. um based on my experience have you um heard of any of those capabilities yet
1: certainly when we start um looking at some of the revit capabilities and i'm probably not the best person to talk on on this but i do (laughs) know the technology exists um we've We've begun to see a lot of builders actually start to embrace these platforms as well, so they will actually be um, employing staff design managers with these with this skill set so that they can take some of our massing models and look at how they're going to sit on the site and start working out their site management strategies. And as you said, things like crane, turning circles or how long they might need a crane on site for mm. which parts of the project and yeah. dividing up their packages and, and working through that, um, even just for the building team to have an understanding of what the output is going to look like rather than trying to just put it together with plans, elevations and sections. That's been um, really important in one of my last projects where they were asking for updates every few months on on the model. yeah um, In terms of the sustainability, there's a huge field out there looking at building performance and building resilience Um, and I feel that that's becoming more um, meshed into the use of um, software like Revit as Mm -hmm. well. Um, There used to be Green Building Studio and I think that's now got a new iteration. Um, Unfortunately in this particular office we don't get to use a lot of that at this point. There's either not um, a call for it with clients or clients have already engaged a um, ESD consultant who mm-hmm. are providing us with that added input as we're going through the, the, the process, the design process.
0: Yeah. And uh, in terms of, do you use Revit or Archicad to then jump into VR or are there other software platforms or rendering platforms that the firm uses to bridge onto virtual reality?
1: I believe there are other packages that we will put mm-hmm. um, the Revit output through. I couldn't tell you exactly what those
0: is it lumion v-ray kirkvia do those Uh, names
1: um v-ray is one of them that we use and then if we're doing um more photorealistic renders which aren't necessarily going down the vr path i think they're using things like rhino and um other programs to process
0: yeah no that's fine and the reason i'm asking is because a lot of my students and teachers are wanting to know what uh, what does the industry actually use mm. and and um whether they need to invest the time into learning those mm. tools mm. and I think one of the things that I want to focus on is the fact that the students or t- um anyone's going down this path they actually have two choices: mm. they can go down the traditional pathway of being a designer, which is the architect mm. and then there's this new role of actually called the BIM manager Mm. and they are very highly skilled when it comes to the software packages Um, what are your thoughts on that do you uh, like I've heard Mm. um, I haven't experienced this but uh, one can be more financially lucrative than the other (laughs) and but obviously the knowledge uh, the skill sets are very different Mm. Uh, what are your thoughts on that
1: uh, I think the BIM managers that I know have organically grown from an architectural or a technician's background, mm-hmm. and they've just had a keen interest in technology um, or, or the software packages themselves. And um, it's it's the type of role which I think is more and more being actively recruited for, whereas it used to be, "Hey, does anyone to do, do this in the office? In or house. you <laughs> like computers, so you can do it?" Yeah, um, and. In, in terms of whether one is more lucrative than the other, I think that's probably on a case-by-case case and a skill set basis. I think definitely the best BIM managers I know have always had, first and foremost, that technological um, background in architectural um, documentation mm-hmm. um, because they still need to be very cognizant of how to put the building together um, and that way they can best value add... To the project team and make sure that we're keeping on track um, with our deliverables. Um, the, the other way of approaching it, I guess, is someone who's really into the software and has segued across from a more just pure IT background. Mm-hmm. But I've not worked personally with people who've come down that that, mm-hmm. that path. There's certainly roles in our office anyway for IT managers, so yeah. they'd probably just want to stick with with that if you were interested in architecture, but came through the IT avenue.
0: Yeah, because I know a lot of my students have asked me this question, um, where they they want to get it's that almost that battle between they need to learn rabbit or Archicad mm. because it's an mm. essential skill, but they don't want to become a draft person or get stuck mm. with stuck with mm. you know just doing rabbit mm. work. Sure, sure. Um, Do you have any advice on students that are coming up or even graduates entering the Mm. industry, how they can balance that and even if they have a preference towards more design Mm. work, how they can not get stuck as a quote-unquote, you know, cad monkey? (laughs) Sure,
1: yeah. Uh, the, The students that we have in our office are always encouraged to communicate where their interests lie and then we best cater for that. So even though we have some amazing and I mean gun rabbiters and amazing SketchUp staff we're still also seeing the value in getting them out onto site so whatever they're documenting back at the office they actually can physically see that on site and understand how that's being put together and I think that's um of great value to anyone in architecture you really want to see the process through from where to go so if you're Mm -hmm. working in an office where you're stuck in a corner and you're only getting to cad Mm -hmm. um then speak up put your hand up and, and and just let your um your project leaders know that you really want some um breadth of knowledge and whether that's something that they can accommodate on one particular project or they need to consider for the next one, it's still worth them, them knowing. And, and if you communicate that, then they can account for it when they're resourcing yeah. the next project. I think that's very
0: valuable advice. And um, when you mentioned the gun sketch-up um, artists, um, sketch up one of the sketch-up technicians, I've got to give a shout-out to Daniel Zullo. Yeah. Um, he's one of my Dan's trainers amazing. as well. Yeah, and he's a registered architect here at PDT as yes. well. He's, he, he's a lovely human being and yes. the way he interacts with teachers as well, mm-hmm. they love it. And he's, he's
1: full of enthusiasm.
0: He is. And he's literally our best, mm-hmm. uh, most loved trainer, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> very popular. Very and he's popular. great to work
1: with and a fantastic architect. Definitely.
0: Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that I've constantly seen him um, do with his design process is using Going back to that mm-hmm. um, conversation before Yellow Trace and constantly sketching with um, Copic markers and mm-hmm. pens and pencils, mm-hmm. and then using SketchUp. And, <laughs> and I know he's he's a gun at Revit as well. Yes, so yes. it's all those tools coming into play, and um, it's becoming becoming a very I think exciting profession. Absolutely, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think um, I'm just a bit mindful of time. Mm-hmm. And um, do you? Any last words or for our teachers that are listening or um, graduates or architect, mm-hmm. um, aspiring architects or designers? Any mm-hmm. last words from your point of view?
1: I think going back on just with what, what we were just talking about, communication is key in architecture. Everyone thinks that you have to be fantastic at drawing or you have to understand how building goes together. But without any of those separate tasks or, or skills, um, if you don't bring it together with communication, communication with your client, communication with your consultants, Communication with your um, contractor—it really does make the job difficult. So you you want to be a people person as well as uh, great at designing or great at um, technology or um, a logical lateral thinker. Yeah.
0: So essentially, um, focus on becoming a balanced professional rather than going down uh, one particular aspect, whether that's technology or design bit of everything a-
1: absolutely because uh in architecture we also um have other areas of the profession that are also critical such as looking at the legalities behind mm-hmm. um, what you're producing making sure that you're mitigating risk and you've got a safe um, building that you're proposing um safety and design is is, is a big one these days yeah um
0: it's a real left brain, right brain paddle, isn't it? <laughs>
1: going back to what I initially was interested in in architecture, it is art meeting science.
0: Perfectly said. I, yeah. I love that, actually. I've never heard that until right now, and I love it.
1: There you go. There That's you go. it. sums it up.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Natasha, thank you so much for coming on board, and um, I think our listeners are going to have a wonderful time and a very informative session today, so thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for the opportunity, Risha.